Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. I love radio. My name is Eric Klein. And I'm Jennifer Waits, and oh, I love radio. <laughs> and Jennifer, you love a particular type of radio in particular, right? Just a little bit more. It's not <laughs> particular fair. squared. It's not fair to pick which kid you love the best, but Jennifer, you love college radio the best. I do. Well... Yeah, although, like, uh, yes, I do love college radio the best. I will, I will say that. And so, what but, are we going to talk about? <laughs> we're going to talk about college radio today. And so, uh, what what is it we're going to talk about? Who are we talking with? So, we're going to talk to Kate Jewell. She's the associate professor of history at Fitchburg State University, and she's working on a book about college radio that has piqued my interest. It's called. Live from the Underground, College Radio, and the Culture Wars. That's the, the working title. And, and we're going to talk to Kate because she's examining college radio in, in an interesting and different way than, than maybe some other folks where she's, she's taking a look as a historian's perspective and looking at the battles that, that were playing out in American culture after the 1960s and how those also get played out in college radio stations. So, so battles about music, battles about censorship, battles about free speech. Yeah, battles over genre, it sounds like, too. Hip-hop and metal well, are sort and of it, because on the it, chopping and block. And the thing I think that, that, to me, is so interesting is that there are these moments that we can go back in American cultural history whether, that, that are about what is acceptable culture, right, that played out on a national stage. And it seems as though in our conversation, Kate has an instance for all these moments where you could also see it playing out at a college radio station in its interface with an administration or whether it interface with local community members, people not on campus, or interface with, with people students, on campus, yeah. other students. And I think like that's, that's a completely fasc- fascinating area and helps us kind of make college radio really re-solidify its place as a cultural force, not just because they broke REM, right, and, and, and independent artists, but because they're playing this vital role as a cultural force. Yeah, and it, and college radio, you know, it has intersections with so many different parts of our culture, with the music industry, with, you know, politics, and, and with local scenes, and the way she's looking at things helps kind of tease all of that out. And it also makes me think about, you know, some of the prominent memories maybe that many of us have about some of the college radio stations that we've been a part of. You know, I've heard lore over the years about, oh, you know, that's when the punk rock overthrow happened at KFJC. And that, that's the station where I teach <laughs> now. But there was a punk rock overthrow at some point, And and other stations have similar stories, and, and and it helps. I think Kate is helping to kind of put that into a broader perspective. Well, let's jump into our feature interview with Kate Jewell, associate professor at Fitchburg State University and fellow at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute. Hi, Kate. <laughs> Hi. Nice to be here. <laughs> nice to have you on the show. I'm very excited to talk to you about college radio. As you know, it's something that I care a lot about. And we've been talking for a while about your book project focusing on college radio and the culture wars. And I wanted to jump right in and and ask you what you mean by the culture wars. Sure. So this is a really big question. And so I'll try and condense it as much as I can. I'll just give you a little bit of sense of who I am as a historian. So I'm a political and economic 
historian interested in in policy and political economy and but in the field of political history there's been sort of a resurgence in it recently and, and a renaissance in that we borrow methodology from from social and cultural history so we kind of expand the framework of what we see essentially as political behaviors and so looking at um, you know beyond politicians and legislation to see you know kind of where politics happens and how it plays out on the ground. So when it comes to the culture wars, historians tend to talk about it as emerging out of the protests of the 1960s, the Vietnam War, and all of the kind of cultural and political shocks of, of that moment that then, you know, you see the resurgence or the, not resurgence, but at least the entry of new groups into political questions after Roe versus Wade and you know, kind of the rise of family values politics with, um, what is largely known as the new right. But really what the culture wars are about are about um, you know, who kind of gets to determine what American culture is, what its core values are, if there is anything such as a, as a core American culture, and that there's a lot of, of tension and conflict around various issues that relate to that, that kind of deeper question that, that people are asking. And so so the culture war sort of plays out in all of these different arenas. So you get the debates over obscenity and pornography, or you get debates about what his, history curriculum should look like, um, but at the college level, but then in textbooks in K through 12. So things like that. And so I came to College Radio thinking about that as a space where you see some of those different interests kind of crossing with one another and, and kind of getting into debates over, you know, what diversity and cultural pluralism on the airwaves should look like and sort of how that kind of bumps up against regulation. So I and tried so to, <laughs> I tried oh, sorry to, to that's my condensed, yeah, that's my condensed version. So, <laughs> so you're thinking uh, sort of 1960s and beyond then, I, I'm, I come to guess from that? Yeah, so I'm looking, um, you know, so another context for the book is the changing nature of higher education and, and how how higher ed kind of plays into broader policy debates and, and cultural debates. You know, so looking at sort of how college radio changes as baby boomers expand universities um, in the 1960s and as stations begin to seek FM signals for various and sundry reasons, um, but sort of how that transition kind of gets caught up in in these larger political and cultural questions. Yeah, that's interesting. I've read a lot about college radio, and and there are definitely aspects of college radio that I think haven't been explored as much by by critics and historians. And you know, often we we focus on college radio and its connections with music, but it, it it's larger political influence on culture, I think, is given far less credit. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, if you could talk a little bit more about how, how college radio is intersecting with the culture re- wars. And I know that's a huge question, as you've <laughs> outlined, the culture wars cover so many different things. Uh, so if you want, you could even pick a, a distinct period where or a distinct example of how you see college radio intersecting with the culture wars. Mm-hmm. So one theme that kind of runs throughout uh, the era that I'm looking at, and, and I, while I do talk about music, and I think that 
you know, the role that college radio plays in music debates, obscenity debates, mm. you know, expression um, is, is really, really important in kind of thinking about how those ideas about what musical expression should look like um, get kind of transmitted down to the local level. Um, but one of the big themes that I look at is this tension, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with, between kind of the student control of stations and community um, relations and sort of what is that kind of public mission of an educational station. And what you see is that idea becoming um, defined in different ways in different moments depending on um, the nature of what they're debating. So, and, and you see it get leveraged. So, for example, um, you know, in the 70s and the early 80s, you see, you know, well, we're an educational station, so we need to be playing things that, you know, you can't hear elsewhere, that we're going to be, you know, educating our listeners on, you know, all these avant-garde musical styles, and that's us fulfilling our public interest. Whereas at, at other stations, you see it getting more defined of, well, we're serving um, communities that otherwise wouldn't have a voice on uh, on the airwaves, on commercial radio or elsewhere. And so that is us fulfilling this, this um, mission. But then, you know, those missions can get kind of leveraged to expand programming and kind of break new ground. But then they can also be used as a tool to kind of create new um, boundaries or barriers uh, uh, to who gets access. And so you'll see sometimes, um, you know, the student body will, you know, members of the student body will say, my student fees are going to the station. I don't listen to it. It's got all this, you know, noisy stuff on it. And, you know, it sounds like, you know, cats yowling or something. And, you know, right. these, these op-eds. And so there's kind of pushback from the institution. Or, um, you know, somebody will, you know, say something on the air and somebody in the community gets mad and the administration will kind of crack down on the station and, and you know, force a, a reorganization or or intervene in the staffing of, of, of the station, or, um, you know, sometimes they'll close the station altogether. I'm investigating an example at Adelphi University in 1994, and I still haven't figured out all of the details of, of that closure. But, you know, that there's a sense that, you know, what the mission of the university is, is no longer served by the campus station. Right, and, and yeah. that happens a lot. And, but Definitely. Sort of, yeah, with it, but it sort of happens within you know, that larger cultural moment and, um, you know, you get all these different cultural voices. So, you know, a locally prominent DJ, uh, Dr. Dre came, not, not Dr. Dre of LA, but Dr. Dre of New York radio came and, you know, was protesting to keep the station open. Um, but especially in those moments where there'll be a cancellation of a show that is really popular with the community of, you know, a, a population that is not necessarily well represented on campus, that you really see those tensions mm. over, you know, a lot of times the students, you know, they see themselves as these progressive proponents and, and wanting to promote cultural pluralism. But then when that kind of comes into conflict, conflict with their desire to express themselves or to have a prime time slot, it, it's sort of a the closer you kind of get to their personal interests, it becomes a much more contested kind of fraught conversation where there is no, you know, right and wrong or, you know, good and bad, that it's about kind of the the weighing of of different interests. When you're when you're talking about community, are you talking about 
the community on campus or the community off campus. Uh, because in a lot of these examples, it sounds to me like you're talking about FM stations that are heard beyond campus. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure these these conversations and the things that you're looking at might be different if you have, say, a campus-only carrier current station that, that can't be heard by anyone except students. So I, I'm curious if your research is really focusing on these FM stations that reach a wider community. Yeah, so I am focusing on these FM stations because, you know, I want to get to ultimately, you know, how College Radio develops this reputation for, you know, breaking new musical acts. And it gets a kind of a, a you know, a commercial um, influence because I think that whole question of commercialization and selling out um, that we see happen in the early 1970s with the counterculture, you know, I see it happening all over the place in in the 1980s. And there's really, really interesting conversations around those kind of slippery terms like alternative and underground and non-commercial that, you know, it's really interesting to see these students grappling with what that means. You know, there's a fight that happens in the book at um, MIT in the early 1980s over, you know, is college radio a democracy? You know, who gets to decide? So there's these really like big questions about, you know, cultural democracy and kind of whose voice gets to be heard that you see playing out in all of these interesting ways. But it does happen on AM as well. Um, You see, I think it's an example um, and I might get the details wrong on this. I think it's at UCLA where there's a Chicano students group on campus who, you know, is basically saying this university doesn't represent us. It doesn't speak for us. You know, we don't have a place to kind of, um, you know, see our culture represented here. And so I think the administration or the radio station um, promote a, a, a show so that students on campus can hear their culture on a campus outlet. And, you know, forgive me if I get the, the details wrong on that. I have a lot of my brain is sort of chock filled with <laughs> with examples right now. So I might conflate some of the details. What, but you do see what that, era was that, that in? Was that I believe it was in the 70s, okay. around yeah, 1973, 74. So hopefully there's somebody listening who, who can <laughs> contact me and tell me uh, the uh, the real story if, if I got it wrong. I've been yeah, just the research for this is, has been really um, interesting. It's very atomized and, you know, these little snippets that I get here and there. And so trying to kind of put it all together um, has been, you know, very challenging, but also really exciting. Kate Jewell, uh, you're an associate professor of history at Fitchburg State University. I wanted to kind of pull the frame back out a little bit. I wanted to kind of elevate her up a little bit here and get back to culture war. Um, and, and maybe you can help me here because I'm not quite following this connection. Um, between sort of the larger cultural wars, the sort of rise of of sort of a conservative politics that came in reaction to the movements of the 60s and, and college radio. How do these conflicts around college radio relate to to that larger frame? I, I, I guess mm-hmm. I'm not quite yet following, or, or if maybe you have a really good example that kind of illustrates sure. it well. Yeah, so, so I guess my most um, concrete example of something that would those interested in music will recognize is the PMRC. And so we tend to think about, when we think about the Parents Music Resource Council and Tipper Gore, we tend to think about the congressional hearings and, you know, Dee Snyder and Frank Zappa. Yeah, so this would be, this would be for, uh, for all those, uh, for all those younger than me. This was a big (laughs) moment in, in the early nineties 
when eighties. Oh, yeah, the late eighties. Six eighty seven. Yep. I, I the way I think of it as why I early nineties it is because this is when CDs primarily, you know, compact discs got a sticker that said mm-hmm. uh, that said this this album is awesome, right? This That's album expli- is full. Explicit lyrics. This album is full of cuss <laughs> words, and you should yeah. you should buy it. Um, but that that that's just a that was just how I viewed it back then. Yes, exactly. The uh, um, the parental uh, advisory sticker, which you know, sort of the way the historians talk about that is that you know the record industry kind of voluntarily censored themselves. But right. one of the things that it was a, it was I during found, a time that mm-hmm. when when hip hop especially was. Um, Hip hop and heavy metal. Yeah, they were they were getting much more bold. You know, there was a time where mm-hmm. there where 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 artists wouldn't use uh, such graphic descriptions of uh, of things that you couldn't say on television. And then and then especially in the eighties, like uh, you know, the, the gloves were off. There was all sorts of things being written down in lyrics. Yes, and so Tipper Gore, you know, famously kind of heard the, you know a song that her child was listening to and wife of was al horrified gore, vice president wife senator. of al gore oh, who is then a senator yeah. and she you know she was horrified by this and this they formed this you know do we know what song group of was? concerned was it two life crew oh i don't remember exactly which song it was but they came out eventually with the filthy 15 list mm-hmm. of of songs that that kind of um ran across genres um yeah they had you know, to there's, right. a print, oh, there's a prince song on there um uh and you know so they 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 sort of were calling attention to these graphic lyrics. Right. Well, there was a local show um, in Santa Barbara at KCSB, and they played a song. Um, it was and that's a, that's a college station. Yes, college station at the University of Santa Barbara. And a DJ played a song called Making Bacon by the Pork Dukes. <laughs> and it was, as you can imagine from the this. title. I remember this. <laughs> it... Um, you know, so it it offended one listener in particular, and I actually just found a, a newspaper profile on him, um, and he, you know, he was so concerned about this because he loved the station, right? It mm. was his station that he listened to, and he said, you know, I don't want it to go in this direction of this kind of puerile filth or, or whatever, you know, this offensive, uh, you know, non-redeemable kind of music as he saw it. And so he actually wrote to the PMRC and they helped him kind of file a complaint and the FCC, ah. you know, eventually, you know, charged them with um, indecency. Oh, wow. And, and if I remember yes. correctly, because uh, this is sort of very relevant when I began college radio, maybe a, one or two years later, um, that the, the song itself is all innuendo. It, mm-hmm. Like there's no four letter words. Um, yes. It's actually not graphic, like Louis Louis, basically. Right. Well, no, it's not like Louis <laughs> no, Louis, I, but they, because Lu- it's completely understandable. Louis Louis yeah. has innuendo because no one can understand it. No, it, it's all double entendre. Yeah. It, I mean, right. it, it's juvenile double entendre. It's not double entendre that it takes any genius to read into. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not exactly. An Oscar and, so, and this was a hip hop song. I'm no. assuming. No, I, I think it's no, it's just, a rock song. Is a is a oh, British band. Okay. You yeah. can find That's it on so YouTube. Funny. I looked so, up the you know, I looked up the Filthy Fifteen for fun, and now it's my new favorite thing. I'm going to listen to the <laughs> Filthy Fifteen over and over again. You got Prince, Sheena Easton, Judas Priest, Vanity. So Prince is overrepresented, if you ask me. Motley Crue, ACDC, Twisted Sister, Madonna, Wasp, yes, mm-hmm. Def Leppard, Mercy Fate, Black Sabbath, Mary Merciful Jane, Merciful Fate, 
Merciful. Merciful fate. fate. Venom and Cindy Lauper. So, Cindy Lauper for She Bop, which yes. has oh, to be the best song on the list. <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, but but going, wow. going back to this, because the reason that that decision sent chills down the spines of radio advisors and uh, you know college radio program directors at the time is because of the very fact that it sort of opened up this idea that it wasn't just the seven dirty words that that yeah. sort yes. of all this innuendo right. she bop is the most bubblegum possible right well and that 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 was not a subject to find but that this other song that did get yeah, fined then you know you, it sort of left everyone in there well we don't know where the boundary is any longer and i don't know if that's part mm-hmm. of your analysis there kate absolutely because you know so you have the whole you know kind of seven dirty words ruling with Pacifica. And then in, you know, in this moment, so this is where the culture wars kind of comes into play, you know, the FCC starts making these rulings that say, you know, we're kind of changing the rules here. But, and radio stations, and you see this just throughout, are going, we don't know, you know, and so we're going to err on the side of caution, because we can't afford a huge fine, our budget, you know, can barely cover the cost of our phones. So how would we, you know, you know, if somebody just accidentally plays something, you know, at the wrong time of day, because there's a whole question about, you know, if if you were safe after 10 p.m. to play something that had a little more innuendo. It a seemed Madonna the ruling, song. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed that even that would be called into question after after these rulings. And there were four different stations, I believe, that were cited um, in this, and they were a mix of, of, of college and, and commercial and non-commercial stations. And this is cited by the FCC or cited by the PMRC? Yeah. Uh, by the by the FCC. But the PMRC was sort of like on the side. And, you know, what I found in this research is that, you know, that they were kind of counseling people basically on how to make these complaints yeah. is what wow. it seems. So I have, I need to follow that, right, following the archival trail of that as and, part and of I, the And I think it's important. Here. To, to reflect on what the, the political landscape is like at this moment. So you say it's like 1987, correct? Mm-hmm. So yeah, this so is, this th- is eight, February, uh, November 87. Is, I'm looking at a, at a newspaper article in the Los Angeles Times that mentions, you know, that there's an eight-month-old eight policy at that point on broadcast indecency. Um, but then, you know, they're, they kind of refuse to back down over this ruling. So, you know, people are, are petitioning the FCC saying, like, we don't understand this. We need clarification. But the FCC is saying, like, no, like you, you know, you have to we have the right to define the language that broadcasters right. can use. And this is the you Ronald know, Reagan FCC. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and, so, and, you know, this this is this is coming on in at the end of his second term. Uh, famously, his interior secretary at one point said he refused to have the, the Beach Boys play on the Capitol Mall for a Fourth of July uh, celebration in the 80s uh, because he felt it would bring in the wrong element. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, wow. this yeah. is because I, I, I think this is, it easily gets lost <laughs> in, all, in, in, in all of this. Uh, how prescient, and maybe you have other, other ways to kind of set the scene, uh, not, not present, how present it was in everyday life, the, this sense of, uh, of the tension between, on the one hand, popular culture lurching forward with, uh, li- with liberalizing what, what, what was you could talk about and this other politically powerful force uh, reacting against that. Yeah, and it, and it relates also into uh, you know, kind of the idea of, of policy and governance and law because, you know, this is, you know, we think about, you know, from the 70s forward, this is the era of deregulation. 
you know, and if you kind of draw a straight line, you know, from the 70s to 1996, when it comes to radio, you would think of that, you know, headed in the way of, of deregulating the space. But here, the FCC is saying, like, they're actually taking that regulatory power for themselves and saying, no, this doesn't go to the courts. The courts don't decide this. We as a regulatory body decide this. So it kind of challenges that kind of deregulation narrative. Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, as you're talking about this, you know, from from going to college radio conferences today in 2018, there's still a lot of confusion at college radio stations about what can and cannot be played and what is indecency, what is obscenity. And, you know, and, and I guess it began, you know, during this period of time that you're talking about. And I'm wondering if that's something that you've been exploring, like our stations kind of continuing to self-censor out of fear of these sort of vague feeling ideas of what's inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the way that I'm sort of thinking about it right now, anyways, and this could change, is the way that these kinds of debates and where college radio stations see themselves in that debate as playing into the sort of oppositional identity that a lot of stations, not all, uh, certainly by any, you know, um, any stretch of the imagination, it's not all, but at, at certain campuses and specific campuses, you know, there's this sense of the radio station kind of is apart from university culture. It's sort of an outlet for, you know, the green haired freaks on campus to go and, right. and, and be themselves. And, and I think that this debate kind of plays into that in the way that um, the culture in these stations defines themselves of like, you know, here are these kind of ridiculous rules and, you know, kind of talking about, you know, I was talking with someone the other day, you know, when we did college radio and it was like, you know, there's always this image of like, you know, the FCC agent out there with his headphones, like (laughs) listening in and taking notes. And, you know, that there's this kind of sense that you are, you know, always on the edge of what is acceptable and kind of defining what that boundary is because you're at this experimental college station that, you know, has this particular reputation. I mean, that happened at WRVU when I was there in the late 90s. You know, there was another fight where some student was like, you know, what is this station on campus? You know, Vanderbilt has this sort of very conservative kind of fraternity, sorority dominated culture where, you know, the people at the radio station and definitely did not fit that, right? We had an out of the coffin goth show on Tuesday nights. And, you know, nice. so it was, it was, um, it was definitely countercultural on Vanderbilt's campus. But I remember, and this is like my, my hook for a lot of stuff that I've been, um, you know, when I go and talk about the book, I say my first quiz at college was the seven words I couldn't say on the air. And, you know, that kind of defined my college experience because, you know, it was like, oh, here's this place, even though I was regulated and there were things I couldn't say, those conversations were so much a part of, you know, what it meant to be on the station. Yeah, one one of the stations that I volunteered at, KSPC at Pomona College, um, it's interesting because they, in addition to the rules kind of handed down by the FCC, they created their own countercultural rules about um, not playing things on major record labels and, mm-hmm. and having this indie-only policy, and, and they wouldn't add things. A lot of times um, music promoters will send things to radio stations that have a sticker saying, this is the date we want you to add this album to your <laughs> station. And, and so they would 
if they got things in the mail that had what you call an ad date, they wouldn't add it just out of, you know, to be rebellious. <laughs> like, don't tell us what to play on our station or that, when to add it. That's the most, like, that to me is what I, 90s alternative culture means. Yeah. Like, yeah. don't do what the record label sticker tells you to do. That was the voice of Jennifer Waits. You're listening to Radio Survivor for the love of radio and sound. We're on the line with Catherine Jewell, Associate Professor of History at Fitchburg State University and currently a fellow at the University of Connecticut in the Humanities Institute. And we're speaking about college radio and the culture wars because Catherine is working on a book, is that fair to say, Uh, that is tentatively titled Live from the Underground, College Radio and the Culture Wars. And Catherine, so you're deep in the throes of research right now, and I caught wind that you're trying to research every college radio station call sign so can you you've tickled <laughs> and this... you have really touched a radio survivor nerve with that quest i know i'm just explain what that means are you really trying to investigate every licensed college radio station if so i <laughs> applaud you <laughs> so so it's sort of um I'm fishing, I guess, mm. would be the best way to explain it right now with what I'm doing right now. So, um, you know, I would like to say that I have this sort of grand organized methodology for how I'm approaching this, you know, kind of either market by market, making sure I have big stations, small stations, AM stations, FM stations. But it's really just been a matter of luck in terms of what I've been able to find. And, you know, so basically I go... Um, you know, to a market and I kind of look at what, um, you know, stations that either I know of or have heard of or seen referenced and see if they have an archival collection. So I've got a big list that I compiled of archives in university libraries that have been cataloged um, to a certain degree or not. Some especially um, have not been cataloged. You know, it's basically the contents of a drawer that a student, you know, in 1994 dumped into a box and sent to the library, um, literally in some cases. Um, so I've been going to those sort of more official archival collections, but, you know, I'm very dependent on what people have preserved. So one of the things that I've been trying to do now is just really kind of, you know, shake the trees for um, where I see debates about college stations that have kind of filtered out into broader arenas for debate. So what I did is there's a site, newspapers.com, which has lots of digitized local newspapers that are full text searchable. And I have a database that I pulled from the FCC um, site of all of the call signs of educational loan licenses. And so it's this big database. It's 36 pages long. I printed it out and I basically just went to and searched as broadly as I could for any hit for every single call sign that I could. And wow. some, you know, so some, it's, it's a little tricky because, you know, these databases are not perfect. Um, there's there's holes in them, so there's going to be stuff that I don't get to. Um, you know, some of the call signs are relatively new, so I won't have. You know, so sometimes I'd have to go up and look up the historical call sign after mm. it changed. Um, so you know, you know, like WMBR used to be WTBS before 1978, so I had to go you know back and look for WTBS because um, Ted Turner paid them for the call signs so that he could launch his television station. That's um, right. I know. It's fascinated by that. And <laughs> you're probably. Yeah, they're probably finding you're probably finding some stations that aren't technically college radio stations by your definition too. Just mm-hmm. from doing my own research, I know that 
you know, it can be hard to suss out sometimes if a station has student involvement. Well, yeah, and the FCC it, doesn't differentiate between uh, all educational licenses are non-commercial. So that could be a public radio station. It can be a religious station. Doesn't have to be owned by university. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I've got you know, but th- that in and of itself has led to really interesting finds. You know, when say you have a more locally oriented music, say like a you know kind of student-run classical music station, where the administration comes in and wants to have more NPR programming. And, you know, so you'll see those those kinds of shifts that play out and, you know, kind of what's the programming going to look like and who does it serve and, you know, what is this educational license for? Um, you know, so I, you know, I ended up searching and finding, you know, there are a lot of NPR repeater stations and, and those kinds of call letters. Um, but it was one of the exciting things was you never really knew what was going to pop up. You know, it, I would think like, oh, this is probably just an NPR repeater station and it would turn out to be, you know, this really exciting, you know, low wattage station in a rural area that, you know, had some controversy that got covered in the local newspaper. Yeah. And often I think, you know, some of those smaller stations and smaller communities at college radio can play an even more vital role and it might even be more contested. Kate Jewell, do you have of places? Do you have an example of that story? Can you tell us it? Oh, let's see. Um, I know I have. Let me just see how big this database is of newspaper articles. I have more than 500 newspaper articles. The interesting thing about looking at the newspapers is that's, you know, college radio doesn't get written about very often in the national press. So when it does, it's often for controversies, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So you probably... That probably is what the bulk of what you're finding is when something is upsetting to people or controversial. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, I mean, so, for example, the, um, was it Central Connecticut? Yeah, Central Connecticut State. So it's a station that's pretty close. So I, I heard about it, actually, from somebody here who, you know, said that they're, you know, it had this really, um, you know, awesome metal show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so here, you know, there's... And you know, lo- thinking, locate us in, in time. When What year are we talking roughly? So in 1998, okay. um, Central Connecticut State University won a big prize for its metal music show. And, you know, and that's it's a pretty, it's a, a you know, kind of in the center of the state. So it's a, you know, I wouldn't call it sort of a, a rural locale. But, you know, as you're kind of going through the list, everything kind of blends together. And it's like, okay, I'm doing Eastern. I'm doing Central. I don't even know what state I'm in right now. And then, like, all of a sudden something will pop up. And, uh, you know, when you think you're just kind of going through repeater stations and all of a sudden it's like, oh, and here's this gem of a station that, you know, serves this really key musical role in, in fostering a music scene that was regional in nature because there was, you know, you know all throughout Connecticut, Long Island, there's a big metal hardcore um, scene going on. And so it's like, oh, there's that. And so then, you know, I have to then do my homework to make those connections of, you know, who was, you know, coming to the school, who would have been tuning in, what was, what did that kind of community around the station look like? Okay. Um, so it's kind of like these signposts that say, you know, there's something really cool going on here. And so then I have to, you know, find the archives, go in deeper than just what is in the newspaper. I mean, it makes a lot of of sense to me, Kate, because I think often college radio stations are existing in their own 
sort of isolated world, even though we're talking about these um, extensions into the local communities. Um, but I, I think often people beyond the local community were unaware of, of stations throughout the country. And, and I certainly was. And I mean, that's part of part of what I've been trying to do the past decade is, you know, exposing all these interesting college radio stations in different pockets of the country. And and so that makes sense to me that you that you will find these sort of isolated examples and that it requires some academic work, you know, to draw the connections between all of these places, even though a lot mm-hmm. of similar things might be happening all over the country. Um, you know, one station isn't always aware of what another is doing and that they have a similar mission or similar, you know, similar battles. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the example that I was, I was thinking of when I was making that reference earlier, um, and I just found it, is KMSC at um, Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa. And in 1980, they had a parody show on their on their station. And, you know, something, uh, the newspaper article pops up in the Sioux City Journal, and they, you know, they've got a photo in the article of the staffers, you know, doing a pyramid in, you know, like three guys on the bottom and two guys up on their shoulders. And, you know, talking about their, their parody show that they would just, you know, kind of have good natured ribbing on. And it's so like, sort of like uh, their own kind of homegrown version of like a National Lampoon radio hour or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think Animal House is even mentioned in mm. the article. And it's like, you know, so you, in 1980, when you kind of zoom out from the historian's lens is this really key moment that college radio is sort of developing or, or coalescing that reputation that had kind of been right the electronic sandbox or the digital what was that what is that term that I'm looking for this you know where people <laughs> just kind of go and play yeah <laughs> just you know put what they wanted on they would have parties on the air and you know, you'd tune in and hear college students kind of goofing off or it's much more free form or um you know, in the 70s, it's sort of the, the conception. Then after the FCC rule change about um, requiring, about the, you know, the cracking down on the small stations and requiring them to up their wattage. It's really interesting that once you have that change, that's when the stations or college radio kind of really begins to develop that reputation for its iconoclasm, but also its influence as they kind of are forced to expand their footprint, you you know, within a region with a higher wattage that universities are saying, okay, like you guys got to clean up your act. You know, you can't be, you know, talking about ridiculous things on the air and you have to represent our university. Well, at the same time that students are, you know, pushing the playing of new music and, you know, things that are unheard and, you know, so it's like you have this one little example, but when you see it within that larger context, it takes on added meaning. Well, and, there, and then like you're on the cusp of so much happening musically with punk rock and rap. And and, and I would imagine these these musical battles get played out. And, and I've seen that in, in some of my own research where there were administrators who were concerned about you know, a Catholic radio station playing punk rock and, you know, mm-hmm. are the lyrics metal. Is this really befitting mm-hmm. of our of our school? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's um metal shows that get into trouble, rap shows. Uh, sometimes there is self censorship, right? That those and one of the things that historians talk about when it comes to the culture wars is that you see um kind of odd pairings in some ways. So um there's a book um on the culture wars by his friend named Andrew Hartman. And he talks about how you get anti-pornography activists right on the, the feminist 
left and among conservative Christians. You know, there's sort of these odd bedfellows, right? Opposing Christianity, uh, opposing Christianity, opposing pornography for different reasons. Um, so, for example, there's a historically black college in Louisiana in, I believe it's around 92, 93, 94, that decides that they're going to self-censor rap music and, and make sure that any if they do play anything, that it sort of meets a kind of um, self-defined content requirement. Um, whereas in Chicago, there's a, um, a, a city, I think is it an assemblyman in, in Chicago, who launches kind of an investigation of what the local college st- stations are doing to make sure that they're not playing um, music. So and that's in the get, 80s? As well, it's like early 90s, at the arise yeah, of hip-hop? Same, yeah, same They will only play period. Arrested Development and no other hip-hop album. <laughs> right. Or, or um, you know, close to home, um, I interviewed a, a fellow alum from Vanderbilt who had a show called 91 Rap in the early 90s on WRVU in Nashville, and he took over from um, the previous DJ, whose name was Be Real, and I found the radio, I found the newspaper article about, you know, that he had this really popular show, this is when hip-hop is taking off across the South, it's this really vibrant scene, and so a lot of members of the community were really interested in it, and and drawn to this show because he was really breaking and and showcasing um, new, exciting acts, and there was... um, a situation at the station where there are a couple community members there who got into a fight and it sort of played out on air mm. and there was no FCC violation, but the administration shut down the station for I think four months. Mm. Wow. Because so, yeah. they were just so worried, right? About, Oh, what's, what's going on? We don't really know this is people from the community. It's not that. Yeah. Cause you have the license holder who has, who may or may not, you know, exercise their say over the content. And then you have the FCC so that that is a pretty interesting part of college radio in particular that, you know, at, at, at some institutions, the institution might not really say anything, but at others, there might be a mandate, you know, like there's a metal station at uh, WSOU at Seton Hall, and, and they can play metal, um, but they still have to keep in mind sort of the Catholic leanings of the school and not play certain types of metal. So I find that fascinating, too, that they're kind of, you know, skirting the edge of things and um, and still playing this very adventurous music that's on the edge. I believe that also... was a compromise, Jennifer, that was reached <laughs> within the last decade. I, I, I'm somebody who grew up in New Jersey and would strain to get WSOU in because it's been playing metal 24-7 since uh, since the, since the eighties, yes. at the very least, middle school taught mm-hmm. Paul Reese Mandel leaning out the window Probably, with his radio yeah. antenna. <laughs> I yes, know exactly trying Putting to tin trying foil to get on the, the station. Top of the... Exactly. Um, so we they are... were playing. They were playing a different kind of metal in the past, is what you're saying? Uh, yeah, you would be more likely to have heard things that had uh, satanic leanings, uh, which was also much more ah. uh, mm-hmm. sort of titillating, I guess, in the eighties and the well, early nineties. I have the newspaper article, uh, May fourth, nineteen eighty-eight, the Asbury Park Press. Yes, and the I, headline is Seton Hall Radio Station Bands Heavy Metal Music. And and here's where it's interesting, right? The students make the case for themselves on constitutional grounds. They're saying this is our freedom of speech that you are violating. And, you know, the station manager saying we're going to fight this every way that we can. And, you know, you see that. Um, yeah, I just ran into a, an example of a, a student who was fired at post-college. Um, I think it's on Long Island, Um 
1970 or 1971. He was fired from the station for playing something that somebody said was obscene. And William Kunstler, the art, uh, the attorney for the Chicago 7, volunteered his time hmm. to come and represent this DJ to get him rehired. Hmm. So you see this kind of playing out over time. Yes. Uh, this is Radio Survivor, and we are talking about college radio and the culture wars, reflecting how college radio fits into this larger kind of political landscape that we've seen uh, really kind of emerging in the late 1960s uh, with the cataclysms the culture in in the United States experienced and sort of the the conservative rebound, uh, the forces that sort of fought back against this sort of liberalization. And to help us out with that, we are talking with uh, Kate Jewell who is an associate professor of history at the Fitchburg State University and also a fellow at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute. I'm Paul Reismandel. And uh, Eric Klein joins me here in our Portland, Oregon studios. Hello, everybody. Jennifer Waits joins us uh, from San Francisco. And Kate, I think that, that, that's something I kind of want to, you know, I, I just want to kind of constantly re- reinforce as we go through this. And you bring up these examples, right, uh, of, of sort of, uh, you know, WSOU at Seton Hall uh, reacting against uh, its heavy metal format in 1988, right? Which is, again, in the shadow of the Parents Music Resource Center, which came to prominence in 1987. Or even you mentioned uh, a station in Louisiana at a historically black college um, wanting to self-censor the hip-hop there in the early 90s. Uh, Or a Chicago alderman who wanted to sort of investigate uh, the college stations in Chicago playing hip-hop. And in that backdrop, right, we have you know, the culture wars being in our national politics at that moment, where in, in his 92 campaign, uh, then candidate Bill Clinton, Democrat, calls out uh, hip hop artist Sister Soldier. Right. right. Makes makes her an icon for sort of uh, violent political uh, commentary in, in hip hop music. It is weird that he picked a woman. Right. I mean, <laughs> oh, you know, it, it, there's many layers there, but that it, that this is this is part of a national conversation that is happening. A political rapper. Right. And not- I'm sure that's something that you that you pull out here in that, you know. It seems to me what you're saying is that is that students in in in, in their stations, uh, administrations that that are playing various roles of in, of oversight along with uh, prominent people in 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 local communities who can hear these stations are sort of having this almost proxy battle about these values. Is that kind of a little bit of what 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 you're what you're really overarchingly teasing out here? Yeah, that looking at how these large you know what we think of as national debates you know, how they play out on the ground, you know, in these contexts where people's, you know, individual aspirations or their own communities are, um, are are kind of shaping what's going on in really, you know, interesting ways where, you know, it, it sometimes blurs the lines over, you know, what the culture wars sides look like, because, you know, you're, Operating at more at this at this local context, um, you know, shaped by institutional politics, shaped by you know the pedagogical um, interests of the administration regarding the station, regarding whatever the the mission of that university happens to be, regarding the community or public service, and you know, so all of those things are kind of levers in how those battles play out at these different stations. But if we kind of you know 
think about the culture wars is actually, you know, there are these important national moments, but when it comes to how Americans experienced it, it was really much more of a local phenomenon mm -hmm. than, you know, the kind of the nationalization of something that it wasn't, um, you know, isolated to just the high arena of high politics, I guess you could call it. Yeah. And college radio is this interface with communities that is much more public than much of what happens on campus. So much of what happens on campus happens inside of a classroom or a lecture hall yeah. or, or a theater that very few people access, you know, so if something sort of controversial happens, certainly sometimes it bubbles up in the, in the media, but a lot of it, it goes goes unnoticed, uh, and radio is is much easier to notice, especially in this in in, in the times that we've mentioned here, specifically seventies and the eighties and the nineties, when uh, radio is a much more prominent medium in people's lives. I mean, would you, would you say that's that's a valid argument? Yeah, I definitely agree with that, and I think also that college radio occupied this particular role within the music industry, you know, kind of getting back to that idea about like, what Jennifer brought up regarding that indie sort of mission that, you know, in the 80s, that's when stations are really grappling over the, what that means. And, you know, it's about it's about authenticity. I mean, and in some ways, you know, if you expand the frame even longer than, you know, just kind of the post 1960s culture wars, if you see, you know, this is another episode in, you know, kind of modernity of, of sort of an era of mass media about places where individuals try and find a source of authenticity, an authentic voice that, you know, is individual and feels real to them and relates to their lives when, you know, so much is sort of seems out of control in terms of what people consume for entertainment, that this is a place where they can go to have a sense of power um, over what it is, you know, that's going to define ultimately American culture or reach the airwaves. You know, I always think of looking at the, the DJ book at the University of Georgia's radio station in the late 80s. You know, they had this long involved battle over whether or not they're going to play Katie Lang's music. And, you know, and, it, and it's at the heart of that, though, is this question over commercialism and what is it? What does it mean? Where does our station relate to that idea and what is our responsibility huh. you know to culture because to at that music. moment katie lang has gone from being kind of an uh, an underground phenomenon to having a pop hit right yes yes and and getting played on commercial radio stations and you know that they had sort of declared you know that they had a rule that if you were played on such and such okay. station we weren't going to play you anymore i immediately um, jumped to ideas of katie lang's gender and sexuality not it had nothing to do with that. It was just whether or not whether or not MTV cared. No, it's this moment of an artist breaking through, yeah. right? And I think that that this play, you know, as I'm sure your research shows out, uh, Kate, is that this plays out time and again where an artist breaks through from the underground, from the college radio world into pop radio, yeah. and and program directors and students decide scramble to figure are they, out. Are they any yeah. longer yeah. now? Uh, Can available we play for them us? anymore? Yeah, yeah I mean. Mm -hmm. it, I've seen that time and time again, too. Like, are, can we still play this artist that we used to play? It used to be on an independent label, and now it's on a major label. So is it okay to play them anymore? And yeah, of course, that's going to involve long conversations if it was a beloved artist on the station in the past. Kate, do you see this going on still? Has there been a change? I don't know to what extent your research is taking us up to the present. Are stations, are college stations in particular, struggling with 
their role vis-a-vis being alternatives, right? Uh, being uh, counter-cultural. Right. Or, or is some of that a little bit more settled business? What's your sense? That's a really good question, and I, I don't know if I have a good answer for it because I think, you know, and I hate to use the term fragmented. I think it still is, Fair. Um, you know, it's always been kind of a fragmented landscape, but I think it's even more so now. Hmm. Um, and, you know, but... And so in what way do you say fragmented? Like, what what, what are some of the fragments? Um, j- you know, just that what you see going on at one station doesn't necessarily translate to what's going on somewhere else. But at the same time, that could be indicative of stations, you know, really still playing this strong role in local scene development, local musical culture, um, and how they identify themselves being very much defined by, you know, their local institutional community circumstances. Um, you know, so some of the limits of this is, you know, when stations are so dependent on those local factors, you know, how much can you generalize about that experience? This is always one of the challenges of doing media history. It's like, you know, you can't really generalize about an audience, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, an institution, you know, looking across you know, when they're determined by so many different factors, you know, it, it, there, are, there are limits there to what you can say. Have, have you, well, have you I think- uncovered any recent controversies? You know, of this sort of of there being battles over a particular artist or even a particular genre or subgenre within the last, say, decade. I haven't seen anything recently. I don't know if Jennifer has run across this and some of yeah, her I mean, research. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say just from visiting stations, um, you know, I used to ask people about independent labels versus major labels. And it reached a point, you know, probably more than five years ago where you know, people just looked at me with blank stares. So yeah. it, it used what, to be something... What do you mean, Gen X grandpa? <laughs> I know. It, it used to be so critically important um, and such a battle at the stations that I've been at. And I think that music is being accessed in so many different ways now that it it's not as simple as major versus indie. And, and people at a lot of college radio stations are, you know, playing things from YouTube and from Spotify playlists SoundCloud. So, yeah, so it's not it's not as connected to what label something is on and if it was created in a more commercial environment or a more independent environment. So um, yeah. yeah, I find myself uh, realizing that some of the questions I used to ask just aren't even relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. I I talked to a hip hop record label owner last night actually, um, who had been on the Vanderbilt station. And, you know, we, we, we talked about this and just how that now more of the currency, the value is on, um, you know, the kind of that going viral um, rather than being independent or major label, that that really doesn't matter anymore, that it's more about you know, sort of this idea of an artist who's kind of discovered out of, you know, obscurity and, you know, gets 10 million views or whatever on YouTube and that there's that. And but even there though, there's a there's a continuity, a deeper continuity, I think, about and and you see this kind of, you know, going back to this idea of college radio as a democracy or even a meritocracy, right? Where you kind of listen and it's the value of the music that's gonna get you ahead. And I think that there is this sense that you, you know, that that's what people want. Whether or not that is actually the reality is a completely different question. Mm-hmm. But I think that those are sort of the the underlying values that shape um, you know, these conversations about music, and that's why it relates to, you know, sort of American culture 
more broadly and these these larger questions about uh, you know cultural authenticity and and national identity even and you know there there are stations today who there are college radio stations who still have mandates like we won't play artists that are on the billboard charts. So, mm-hmm. so that is still going on, um, this idea that we're providing an alternative. But I feel like it's not as, um, it's not as intense for me anyway from, from my research and, and visits. I don't feel it's as intense of a battle as the period that, that you're going to focus on in your book. Yeah, yeah, and it really relates to, you know, I, I feel like there's a, a different book project here about you know, kind of the business of music. And, you know, I'm an economic historian, so I'm interested in sort of those business dynamics as well. But I think there's some really, you know, interesting questions there. Well, yeah, as 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 you know, there are probably, there are so many things to explore in college radio <laughs> history and not enough people exploring it. So I'm I'm really excited about your project. I'm glad that you're diving in and I can't wait to hear about all the stations that that you're going, that you're doing the deep dive into. So... It's been really fun. Thank you. Kate Jewell, Associate Professor at Fitchburg State University and Fellow at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute. Your book is tentatively titled, it's not complete yet, Live (laughs) from the Underground, College Radio and the Culture Wars. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor this week. Thank you all so much for having me. This has been really great. I'm so pleased to be here. Jennifer, thanks again for bringing us a fascinating interview and uh, a fascinating person who is within our Radio Survivor universe. Uh, I think it's wonderful that that we get to know Kate Jewell better. And she kind of glossed over a quick point um, in, in sort of talking about this history of college radio. I know what you're going to say, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, thank God she did because, you know, <laughs> the weeds, here they come. Yeah, in, in, in the early 1980s, right, she sort of said very briefly, there's this moment in which she called it kind of a crackdown on, on college stations they had to power up or go away. And right. I, and, and I don't want to let that pass because it's an important moment, I think, in sort of that corporatizing tension and that tension of consolidation that she also mentions that's happening in the 70s and the 80s to kind of come to this cataclysmic moment in 1996 with the Telecommunications Act. Because in 1978, the FCC decided that it would stop licensing 10-watt Class D educational radio stations. And there were a lot of high school in particular, college, community college stations. These that were had these affordable licenses. to put on the air and they were... Uh, Super affordable. And they were small uh, signals. Yeah, very small signals. And that went and away And some still exist, by the way. Yeah. But they, th- what what happened is is that one they said we will no longer issue these licenses except in Alaska. Two, they said that these stations will be unprotected against encroachment. Ah. Meaning, if uh, a larger station wanted to come and expand its signal and it might encroach on your signal, or rather, your signal might encroach on their new signal, you go away. The Class D has no standing. And the only way that and that, you, and that happened, I'm and that assuming. happened, and but <laughs> a lot. they gave them an opportunity. It continues to happen. Yeah, they gave them an opportunity, and they said, "There's this window in which you may power up. You may apply for a power increase, expensive, and ex- yeah, because you you were not powering up to a hundred watts. You were powering up to hundreds, five hundred, a thousand watts or more. So pretty cool uh, for people who have their act together and financially to but, go geez, file the paperwork. Yeah. I mean, much more difficult an to opportunity file. to either uh, get big or go away. And two of the primary organizations behind this who petitioned the FCC were National Public Radio 
and the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Because they were the ones that were the big ones that wanted to eat those spaces on the dial. Right, that that saw that uh, that these were you know spaces on the dial being taken up often by uh, what they ca- what they often categorize as amateurish programming. That wasn't really an alternative. One of the big arguments is that, say, if high school station tended to play the same things as, say, your local rock station, only more amateurishly. They were playing Led Zeppelin. They were playing Boston, 1978. Uh, you know, the Eagles. Um, and there was some other station already doing that, right? Uh, and, and they would bring up these examples uh, about it. Uh, so, Paul, were they, they, the were really, they were really coming out against college and high school radio. They were coming out against Class D, Right. They wow. were not coming out against your 500 watt, 1000 watt, 7000 watt college station. But in particular, most of the examples they cited tended to be more along the lines of either like a community college or a high school or mm. even there were like technical colleges, uh, business colleges at the time that had, uh, you know, so associates degree granting institutions who had stations. And they would basically say, we don't know what the role this plays and what they were concerned about is one that local funding bases would be uh too fractured too diluted they being uh, npr and the, the national the federation of community broadcasters and then they were also i think also concerned about the actual spot on the dial um you can read my research on this <laughs> in the book called to. the radio reader uh, where I put that in context with the resurgence of low-power FM in you the early 2000s. It's a book chapter in the Radio Reader, uh, edited by wow. uh, Michelle Hilms and Jason Laviglio. Um, go to your local public library to read that. But I, I, why I think that's important to note, right, is that some stations, college stations, did power up. But often I think that that was a moment in which they call attention to themselves to their administrations mm. and and they're asking for resources they're asking for money in particular to power up and and I think that was probably an inflection point by putting yourself under radar means now you also are asking for wow. uh, evaluation asking people to take a look where maybe you had skated by barely noticed for quite some time a very notable point in radio history I'm glad I'm glad we didn't interrupt today's interview to to dig into that but it's, I'm also really glad that we noted that today here at the end of radio survivor thank you Paul uh time to go I think it's time to go so uh, for show notes to learn more about things we talked about on today's show go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast I'm certain this is episode number 164 if you're looking through and you'll also want to check out some recent episodes uh, where we have talked about how we are now in the post end of radio era. We're in the post radio is dead era. That's a fantastic episode as well. We recently had a live episode for the grassroots radio conference where we talked about the next five years in community radio with our friends Ernesto Aguilar from the new National Federation of Community Broadcasters that would never try to get rid of low wattage stations. And as well, we talked with uh, Vanessa Vanessa. Maria Graber. Yeah, what a wonderful guest Vanessa Maria Graber Graber was talking about their work at Philly Cam. And uh, as well, you know, a, a TV station and a radio station there in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And, you know, how she runs that station as an educational institution uh, for the community of Philadelphia. Knit into the community, yeah, the urban a- community of, of Philadelphia. That's all at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Uh, we are a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To learn more about how you can help us do what we do, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. If you have any comments about anything you heard on today's program, please drop us a line. We love hearing from listeners. Email us, 
podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Jennifer, thanks again for bringing us another wonderful topic. Sure, anytime. And thank you, everyone, for spending another hour with us. 